Hi, and welcome to the Andy Gorman Golf One Putt Podcast. And uh, we're here to talk about golf, all things putting and short game, and a little bit of tour talk. This is a pre-recording. We will be launching out on Monday as normal, but uh, this is Friday afternoon, as we have both a very busy schedule. And the both is because Gareth is um, is here with me. Uh, welcome, Gareth. Uh, I hope you're well, mate, and I hope you're looking forward to your nice weekend. Um, it's partly Gareth's fault because he's going away for the weekend, but um, I've got a very <laughs> day, so uh, it's worked out perfectly for us to have a, uh, a end of week catch up and beginning of the following week catch up as well, and record at the same time. So, uh, welcome, Gareth. Thanks for being online. Thanks, Andy. Really looking forward to it. Lots to talk about. There is, isn't there? And um, you know, we, we may as well just jump straight in with um, a bit of tour talk. We're back in Europe. The European Tour is back, and we're actually back in uh, England. Uh, not so sunny, um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great to have the European Tour back up and running again. It's all a little bit strange seeing golf without crowds, but um, you know, I think the guys are playing quite nicely and um, managing the change of atmosphere. Obviously, uh, none of them have actually played for the best part of, I guess, about four or five months now. So, um, yeah, it's just great to see everybody back out on the course. And at Close House, which, of course, hosted the British Masters in 2017, um, good old uh, Lee Westwood, um, you know, it's his home home course and, and venue. And it's just great to see. But, uh, have you had a chance to watch it? little bit yeah i caught a little bit um kind of highlights last last night and um it, it's strange because i know last time it was at close house for the british masters they had seventy thousand people there and a golf course looks so different with how kind of fans there but in particular because of the undulation at close house it makes mm-hmm. the course look a little bit more dramatic i feel yeah it is and, and of course they've got a different 18th hole because they're able uh you know they're playing without a crowd. Um, they they didn't. I mean, there's no room around the current 18th hole for grandstands, which is uh, so it makes for a more dramatic finish. I think. I mean, that's not to say that the par three wasn't great because it it is. Um, it was a great hole for it, but uh, but ultimately, yeah. So it's, I think sometimes finishing on a par three, yeah, it just doesn't quite seem right. For you know, you've only got to hit one good shot. Although you know, that's that said, you still got to do it. Um, I say one good shot. If you miss the green like Paul Dunn did, um, you have to make another good shot, which of course he did, and um, you know, produced that great chip in for his maiden victory. So uh, I think today it's still his maiden. It's his only victory, isn't it? So uh, he's um, yeah, be be interesting to see how it all pans out um, this time well, around. We've, well, we've got another par three coming up on the, the UK swing, haven't we, at the at Forest of Ard and just down the road from you, Andy? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, that one, uh, the thing I like about, it's going to be a, sound a little biased now, but I mean, actually, you know, it is a good, <laughs> when, when I played it, it was a wood off the tee, typically. Um, you know, now it's probably a seven iron for some of these guys. Uh, you know, I was not short. Um but invariably, I don't think I've ever gone in there off the championship tee with anything le- much less than a, th- I want to say, a three or a four iron. I may have hit a five iron at some point, but, you know, it's a 220-yard hole. They, I don't think they've got any room to extend it. So, you know, water doesn't really come into play, um, you know, for these guys because it's a long way short and left. I mean, it, it is in play for recreational golfer, but, um, 
yeah, I'm I'm thinking at two twenty, it's going to be you know if, certainly if it's downwind, could be as little as a seven iron for some of these um, guys, and you know if it is into the into the wind, probably not much more than the four iron. So yeah, it's quite quite a different course to what it um, what it was. You know, the last time we saw a tournament there, which I'm going to say is about. 13 or 14 years ago so yeah yeah what, what a great venue i love the golf course one of my favorites in in our area in the midlands anyway and i yeah. remember when i when i played there and i was i think it was 15 I, I was similar to yourself hit a three wood into the green off the championship tees bounced it on the road behind the green and <laughs> it, it landed on the roof <laughs> oh okay that's one way of doing it technically yeah. bounced <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Been <laughs> <laughs> chip shot off that roof, actually. So, uh, <laughs> having been in the hotel and stood on that area, um, or been over in that area, I can safely say that it would make an interesting chip, but still, or pitch at least. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it will be interesting. Of course, we, you know, also in the area, um, we're going to be at the Belfry in a few weeks' time as well. Oh, so. how dramatic is that going to be? I can't wait to see the, on the tenth tee and then the eighteenth <laughs> exactly. It's um yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting cause and obviously, you know, we've got a lot of history and you know, sort of Ryder Cup and and obviously other events, you know, from you know, it's where I spent a little bit of time watching certain Spaniards um chipping the ball around the short game area and the putting green, you know, as a kid growing up and you know, seeing my heroes. Um so it has a, a lot of affection. Of course, it's where I learnt my trade as you know, I got into the trade there, left school in 1985 and was very fortunate to land myself a, an assistant job in the shop. Um, so I learned a lot of what I know, um, you know, within the golf industry side of things, albeit things have very significantly adapted themselves since then. Um, you know, but yeah, I did very much learn my trade and, um, you know, at the Belfry and, you know, I... It, it has a, a place in my heart, you know, it's, um, it's part of my DNA, I suppose. Um, nearly five years there, both on the golf course as well as in the golf operations. So, you know, got to learn a lot about how golf is done, um, you know. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that back. It's just a shame, obviously, it's behind closed doors. I would have gone down and, you know, sort of maybe even snuck on the putting green or inside those ropes. But, um you know, yeah, unfortunately, we're not allowed to do that anymore. But um, we're talking of certain Spaniards, did you catch the Open for the Ages, Andy? Uh, I did. I, I did manage to see it. I, I, what a great weekend of sport. I mean, I've got a, you know, this time last year, we were doing the same thing, if you remember. Um, England was winning the Cricket World Cup mm -hmm. and um, Lewis was um, destroying the field at um, Silverstone and there was... Um, what else was on the open championship was on so I'd, i think at one point in time we had ipads phones and the tennis that was it wimbledon. Tennis, wimbledon was on yeah it was that sunday afternoon we had ipads and tvs all linked up to um different sky packages that i've got thankfully um and we were watching you know cricket in the uh cricket i think was on the main screen i think cricket for us with the world cup the opportunity for um, for England to win the World Cup was big, and obviously, you know, Becky's big into a cricket, and so you know, I, I love the opportunity for any anything sport. But of course, then, you know, Lewis was racing around Silverstone, so we had to have that on. And again, <laughs> and and this Saturday, Sunday was a little bit the same, really, for us. And um, you know, so we were watching 
you know, pretty much everything going on. And I was trying to catch up on the, or keep up with the golf. Uh, I, yeah, I think they did a fantastic job of, you know, creating an atmosphere and, and again, creating something that you didn't actually know probably until Tiger dropped his shot at 17. Um, you know, figuring out how it was going to pan out. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, I, I knew that Tiger only made four. But again, you know, obviously he would have played the hole differently if he was one behind playing against Jack. And, you know, so it left all those sort of questions like, how would it have really been? But I thought it was brilliant. And obviously to see Seve, you know, playing, um, you know, in 84, um, you know, it was just terrific. You know, I mean, that's for me was just like, you know, major. Yeah, it's great fun. Great fun. I loved it. Um, yeah, I thought it was great TV. And, and the fact, obviously, we're not able to watch um you know live open championship this year it's you know obviously it just doesn't exist does it so you know what i really loved and it's it's something i've never really seen kind of footage of Seve in that kind of way because mm. um he was a little bit before my time but growing up with my dad and being a kind of he's my dad's inspiration my his hero and i've kind of taken on those connotations but his wedge control andy his distance control was amazing yeah, um, you know, Seve was just, yeah, it was an enigma, really. Um, it was very difficult to figure out his technique. You would never want to, uh, you know, to try and uh, try to match, try to, you know, there, there wasn't anything there that you would want to necessarily adopt into your own uh, methods. That said, it didn't stop us trying. You know, I grew up with Seppi, you know, at his best. I was a teenager. So, you know, for me, you know, I was very fortunate to sort of get close inside the ropes. It was before, you know, we sort of took it. I did take it for granted, you know, but before we were sort of ushered away to the white picket, the other side of the white picket fence. Um, you know, but to be able to get up close and personal with, you know, my hero, you know, for, mm. for want of a better expression, sure, you know, the Faldos and the Langers and Normans and that, those were there as well. And, you know, but but just be able to get that close to to greatness, um, you, you know, it felt like on a weekly basis, but only ever occurred whenever the Belfry tournament was on. I didn't go to any other events. Um, but the, you know, yeah, to, to just see him strike a golf ball, you know, even if he hit it offline, he seemed to strike it well. Um, you know, and, and that wasn't always the case, of course, but, you know, because you can't hit it as far offline as he did and it'd only be a good strike. But he put some some compression into the shots, whether it was a, a drive, you know, obviously to, he was a long hitter, but more importantly, into his wedge shots, he had such control over the flight of the shot. And, you know, it, you know, I, I wish I could recall, you know, as as close as I was, you know, the, I could see the flights of the shots and, and did nothing but marvel, but actually I'd love to have had the data on him um, to see exactly how he delivered the club into the back of the ball, irrespective of how he swung it, what what the numbers were when he hit the ball um, with the club. That's, that's the bit for me. That's the intrigue for me um, now, because obviously, you know, I, I use GC quad so I can capture numbers, but it would just been amazing to have gotten Sebi's numbers and you know, see how he controlled the flight of that shot because, like you say, the distance control was phenomenal. Um, was he just feel with Serbia then, Andy? Kind of technique wasn't really a, 
an issue, but it was more of he'd feel and manufacture that shot he needed to make. Um, I think one of the things that he gained, you know, in a simple answer, the answer is yes, but he knew his technique as well. Um, Seppi was never worried about the technique with his short shots because he'd learned um, in such a creative way. Remember, he, you know, he stuck a, a wooden stick into the head of a three iron and played every shot with that. So, um, you know, for him to, uh, you know, to sort of, he, he, he did play by feel, you know, it was completely by feel and, you know, or should I say it appeared to, you know, I, I didn't know Seve to the point where I can absolutely categorically say, but then, you know, I've spoken to other people that have known him and, and have worked with him. Um, you know, I remember having lunch with, sounds a little pretentious, sisters, but, you know, had lunch with David Ledbetter a few years ago. Um, at Champions Gate and, you know, we asked questions, you know, he was f free to ask as many questions as we liked. And I asked about Seve, you know, you, you worked with him, but, you know, really what was the story? And, you know, it was about the fact that everybody believed that he was creative, that there's no way he could have worked with a technical, perceived technical coach. Um, and, and of course, you know, I, I think the golf industry would acknowledge and, and David would acknowledge himself that, He's perceived to be a technical coach, but also he knew how to, you know, allow a player to work from the technical to the feel. And he, you know, he said he was very technically aware and very adept. Um, and the misconception of Seppi's ability to be able to work with Ledbetter, I think it was ninety-two, you know, was removed from Seppi's hands by his brothers. And you know, they said there's no way you can work with such a technical coach; he'll destroy you. Um, of course, you know, I mean, we worked with Mac O'Grady for a while and, well, I will leave it there. But, um, you, you know, I mean, it got to a point where Seppi was completely confused, mm. um, you know, towards the end of his playing career. And, you know, I'm not saying that Mac was, was responsible for that, but ultimately, you know, he'd, he'd had lots of advice thrown at him. And, you know, I think there was ultimately a... Um, you know, when somebody makes a decision on your behalf, you have to own your decisions. So, you know, you can't be a technical player. Well, you know, there's a difference between technical, knowing, you know, that you've got technique, technique right, you know, and still playing with feel, even though you've got your technique right. Because ultimately, you know, I don't think anybody would question Tiger's technique, you know, say 10 years ago around the greens. Um you know, certainly 15 years ago, we saw him with the shot of the Masters and all that. He, you know, he never hit, he never appeared to hit the wrong shot and he never played it badly. So, you know, his ability, but then, you know, there was an, a period of time where his technique got in the way of his ability to, to feel shots, you know, probably thinking a little bit too much about certain techniques. And we saw him struggle after one of his returns about five years ago. Um, you know, many said he would never return from it. You know, but Tiger was far too good um, not to. And, you know, it comes down to the fact that ultimately these great field players invariably keep moving. And that's the bit, you know, ultimately when you're playing shots with little speed, you've got to keep moving the club. Um, and if you can keep the club moving and you keep your chest moving and the handle moves at the rate that it needs as well as the head, um, you know, if you're playing a flop shot, the handle's going to move less than the club head but then ultimately there's speed in there to create elevation and to create spin and 
you know, that all of those characteristics really come out, um, you know, in the field player. And it's generally the field player doesn't lose his skills. You know, it's, it's you know, it's those that are caught up in poor technique and are sort of regimented in their technique that ultimately the brain overcomes the technique. The brain goes back to default, which is, you know, you need to do it a little bit more uh, instinctively. And, um, you know, when a player sort of starts to wrestle with the short game and, and you know, it's a lack of momentum ultimately that's causing the problem. Um, that's not to say you can't struggle off the tee because you can, but, you know, ultimately the lack of momentum in the short shots, you know, because we're not swinging the club very quickly, um, you know, you can start to manipulate the movement of the club. So, you know, we just have to be mindful of, of the short game Ultimately, you need to keep every part of the, the golf club moving applicable to the shot you're trying to play. Um, mm. Whereas, of course, with the, with the fuller swings, you are swinging the club in the similar way, albeit on a different plane because of the length of the club. And that may affect the rise angle, of course, um, into the back of the ball, the angle of attack, etc. You know, you're playing different shots with different clubs, albeit with a full swing. So the swing itself is generally similar. Um, the short shots, you know, the, there are a lot of variety around the greens, which, you know, ultimately means that if you just pigeonhole it into a very simplistic putting, chipping, you know, pitching, you know, flop shots, bunker shots, three-quarter swings, full swings, you know, there's a handful of shot, half a dozen shots that you've just incorporated into everything under, you know, sort of 100 yards and you know, 80 mile an hour and, you, you know, you could be swinging the club at less than a couple of mile an hour on some of the putts and, you know, less than 10, 20 mile an hour on some of the chips. So, you know, it's that lack of momentum that potentially causes our manipulations and it's the manipulations that stop things from working, um, you know, efficiently. Of course, they could rectify it to start with, which is often what happens. You know, we hit a bad couple of bad shots with an open club face. We, you know, just roll the wrists or, you know, allow the toe of the club to release past the heel and you're no longer missing it to the right. You might be missing it to the left very quickly. Um, you know, but ultimately, you know, your your brain is going to take over some of the misses. And, um, you know, if it instinctively knows, the brain instinctively knows what's going to happen before you do it. It knows if you're aiming in the wrong place because it's spatial awareness is, is a very heightened sense um, within the brain and you know if we have poor posture it's you know very difficult to be instinctive so all of these things that you know I look for as a coach you know are the reasons why folks struggle and when they struggle you know ultimately you, you know it comes down to poor posture and you know if you've got poor posture you can't keep the club moving so it comes back to momentum 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 so it's um with that kind of thinking about posturally then I know there's a, there's a big trend on, on tour now, and I've seen it this mm. week in particular with the British Masters with players with differing grips. And it seems the popular one at the moment is the pencil grip. Mm. But also then um, the reverse claw being demonstrated by um, Miguel Hangel Jimenez this week is, yeah. is a little bit puzzling. What's your thoughts on that, Andy? Desperation. Yeah. Um, ultimately. Uh 
right. So I, I generally see claw grips occur after we've gone down the other routes. So um, there's a general pattern of start. So let's take the older golfer because what we've got to be very mindful of is that the youngsters are very impressionable. So they've now seen players growing. They've grown up with players using claw grips. So they think that's normal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, uh, but let's take an, an older golfer. Obviously, um, Miguel is uh, in his early 50s, uh, eligible to play on the seniors tour. He's still more than eligible game-wise to compete on the, on the main tour. And, you know, if he can get through his putting, challenges which clearly he's going through some um you know then you know he, he can come out the other side as a winner because he's still a terrific ball striker you know and and obviously we know he's um, got his crazy fitness routine and and flexibility mm -hmm. regime that he goes through and that's awesome because you know i'm in a similar age category to him and uh, you know i kind of envy some of his flexibility so you know and, and you know generally speed as well um you know, so I've got no, you know, I dot the cap to him there. My my challenge as a as a short game coach is that, you know, everything he does so well with a wedge. I was watching him yesterday and, you know, sort of observing his wedge shots and then, you know, looking at, you know, just probably the most exasperating putting stroke that, you know, I've seen in, a, in many a while, um, you know, challenges me, challenges me for him, not just, you know, for me as a coach, you know, how do you bring somebody out the other side of it? Or quite simply, if, you know, the player's willing, but, um, you know, the typical pattern of, of, of challenges is we bend over a putter, um, we start to develop a consistent miss. That consistent miss then is, you know, countered by, you know, either involuntary or, you know, sort of manipulative momentum and movement so we let's just say we start pulling the putt which is fairly general you know and then we end up missing to the right and so we're missing left and right so now the brain's completely scrambled and let's say for argument's sake that the yips don't occur in the full twitch fashion you know because of these constant changes we then go to a reverse grip so left hand low for right-handed golfer um that mm -hmm. kind of uh sort of stabilizes the the wrists allegedly during the stroke and you know so we've got a consistent right would miss so then the player moves to a place of aiming further to the left and blocking the putt onto the line um because the brain doesn't cope with that very well and you know again we've go down the same route the wrists start to counter the block uh, method and you know the wrists start to break down again now you know evidence is there data's there to back it up you know, and, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, over 150 clients now have come through with putting yips, you know, and, you know, over the last five, six years. And, you know, I, I see it far too often for me not to identify the common factors because they're not rooted in stone. So, you know, every case is different, but this is fairly commonplace, you know, as a, as a pattern. So, you know, we go through this adjustment of aim and then, you know, the brain starts to break the wrist down again to try and counter the miss that then starts to reoccur. And typically a putter gets cut a little bit shorter. So we get a bit closer to it and make sure the eyes are even more over the ball. And, you know, then we switch to a pencil grip to take the right hand out of it, even though the problem isn't the right hand and, you know, a claw grip or whatever it might be. And then we kind of bend the wrist and try and crook the the arm and then of course yesterday was the ultimate it's just like you know let's go reverse claw because then nothing can break down we'll just stick the elbow out and 
you know, and, and claw it the opposite way around. And it's like, uh, you know, and, and of course we've got arm lock as well, which, you know, because um, that's obviously, you know, we can't anchor anymore, albeit that's anchoring just in a slightly different way. Um, and, it, you know, I'm challenged for the player. I'm, you know, look, nothing affects me by a player doing that. But what he does do is affects the clients that potentially come through the door with me, um, mm-hmm. you know, because they're seeing it and not knowing why the player's doing it. They're thinking it's the fix. And of course, there will be times where there is an element of fix. And I, I'm, I won't deny it. You know, ultimately, that fix does happen, you know, and a player maybe puts better statistically. You know, we know strokes gained is a really good way of understanding and identifying what challenges might be. You know, and where strokes gain then improves when you make a grip change or if you don't make a grip change, you know, what, what's going on. So arguably you look at, you know, what Mickelson's now doing where he's, you know, taking the putter back or what Miguel's doing and, you know, stopping the wrist from breaking down. You know, they're not necessarily in honeymoon periods yet, you know, because they've not found the winning formula with it. But then, of course, you know, Lee Westwood found a winning formula in the claw grip, um, you know, in his... Uh, victory at the beginning of the year in Abu Dhabi. So, you know, these things can work, and I'm not saying they can't and shouldn't be tried, but are you fixing the fault? And, you know, the fault doesn't come from the grip. The grip is a consequence, or the wrist breaking down is a consequence of poor posture and the body not able to move uh, properly. And this is misunderstood, you know, this is where the golf industry is not getting it. As I said to you before, and I've said before, and I'll continue to say this until our PGAs around the world recognize that if you do not teach the correct mechanics of the putting stroke to the PGA pro when he's in training and then subsequently, there is no PGA training on putting and short game because there's no authorities able to do it. You know, if the PGA doesn't know anything about it, you know, and there's no point in going to a swing coach to try and get swing coaching principles into putting and short game because they don't understand them. And, you know, I, I see a constant epidemic. I'm sounding a bit passionate now. Um, it, you know, I see a constant epidemic of problems in short game. Putting, you know, is poor posture, bent over, can't move the body correctly, get hands and armsy, you know. And yet all the coaches that I know talking about, you know, waxing lyrical about putting is got to be done with the big muscles. Well, you can't if you bend over too far. Um, yeah. You end up separating the arms. I've, I've been on the phone this, uh, this morning to um, a PGA pro in Australia, and you know we've talked for an hour and a half on a call. We had a fantastic conversation, you know, and he said, "I don't, I don't get this information anywhere else, Andy." I've never got it. I've never understood. I've followed you. I've seen you online. I've followed you. You know, I found some of your material and I really like it. But I have never heard this anywhere else. But not only does it make sense, but it works. But, I, you know, I want to compensate you for that working as well. And I want to work with you more closely. So, you know, can I come on a remote program? I mean, here's, you know, 10 hour diff- time difference this morning, um, you know, on the phone. Phenomenal. You know, be willing Amazing. PGA Pro looking for the answers. And I'm not saying I've got them all, you know, but I've got a heck of a lot more than, you know, a swing coach. Yeah, I didn't have them when I was a swing coach. I, you know, I sacrificed an awful lot of, 
coaching time to to research what the body was capable of doing around the injuries that I sustained 30 years ago in a car accident. You know, mm. my knowledge of the body is not one of going to Sheffield Hallam and coming out with a biomechanics degree after seven years. I'm not an academic. You know, my challenge to anybody is that if you're not an academic, you're not going to get a doctorate, you know, in a field of expertise that actually isn't quite as expert as you may think, you know, and this is a challenge, you know, this is a challenge to a number of people out there who are specializing in other areas, you know, and, you know, there will be people who will recognize without naming names, people within the golf industry who are qualified in podiatry, who are teaching the golf swing or the putting stroke without biomechanical principles. That yeah. challenges me. You know, it's a massive challenge to me because you may be a qualified doctor of sports biomechanics, but if you specialize in feet, how can you possibly know about the spine significantly enough to know that some of the coaching principles that you may have been taught as a player have been incorporated into your methodology as a teacher, but not necessarily biomechanically correct. And this is, you know, when I found out the hard way or a painful way, you know, I had two fractures in my spine in 1989 following a car accident. And, you know, I had to learn. I was told you'll never play golf again. If you carry on swinging a golf club, you'll end up in a wheelchair. And because the, the consultant that I saw couldn't or wouldn't tell me, and I say couldn't because I don't think he was able to tell me why, let alone wouldn't because he didn't tell me why. Um, you know, he was a, you know, a spinal specialist, but ultimately he didn't help me because he did, because he, he forced me to go and get the answers from somewhere else. So chiropractors, osteopaths, physiotherapists, you know, specialists in spine movement and repair, more importantly, physiotherapists are, you know, very knowledgeable about the way the spine works, chiropractors and osteopaths also. You know, these spinal specialists showed me and taught me how movement occurs around the spine and what it's designed to do and what each area of the spine is designed to do. And then subsequently, you know, if you can apply that principle of movement, then, you know, the movement of the golf club, it becomes smoother. Well, of course, that was fine in the full swing because that was my concern. But ultimately, I turned pro and then the PGA training manual taught me how to yip. It taught me to get me into principles that basically took all the biomechanics or all the anatomical principles of the body out of the stroke and taught me how to mechanically apply movement whilst being flawed to the human body. So, you know, it'd be, a, it'd be the, the, the challenge that I faced was, you know, that I now could hit the golf ball straight and, and a good distance, certainly well enough to compete, you know, at the highest level, but I hadn't got a putting stroke that could contend with it. You know, as a kid, I didn't worry about putting because I chipped it so close. But, you know, when I got to a point where I was playing the longer courses, I was playing, you know, we were using blocks of wood back then as well, remember, and Bellata golf balls. Golf balls mm -hmm. didn't fly straight and they didn't fly as far as they go today. But ultimately, you still have to put them all in the hole. You know, and I would stand over a four-foot putt not knowing which side of the hole I was going to miss it on. I was in that sort of phase of, of understanding what it was like to, um, you know, be confused over a putt. And, you know, that's not a good place to be. 
but then yeah. you know by understanding going back to my notes again you know recognizing what it was that i'd learned to swing the golf club the way the body's designed to move i was able to get into a better posture but not with the 31 and three quarter inch putter that i was fitted for and not with my eyes over the ball and not with a method of swinging the putter in a straight line straight back and straight through with the face square to the target which defies the laws of physics but of course you know i only signed my physics paper at school i didn't you know it's the last exam i mean i don't mind admitting this you know i mean it's, you know i don't think you get away with it now but it's the last exam it was thursday afternoon it was you know one o'clock start we'd had lunch i'd um i'd had a morning session you know i can't remember what it was it might have been maths or something like that but you know the last exam was physics <laughs> and i went in signed the paper put my name on it form form school did what you have to do and then asked if i could go to the toilet and never came back <laughs> 40 minutes later i was on the first tee <laughs> should have been sitting there two and a half because there was absolutely no point in me taking it you know I'd, I'd got no retention of knowledge as a scientist and yet you know me you know science is something that flicks my switch what doesn't flip my switch is, you know, is what you have to do to get out the other side. Doing the exams was fine. Writing up the papers was just, I couldn't do it. It was like walking through treacle. And, you know, that was, that was my shortcoming as a, as a, uh, as not, as not an academic, you know, I'm not, that's why I didn't go to university because I could not, I, I was fascinated by learning. I, you know, me, I love learning. I love new principles but I have a learning style that, you know, is, is a challenge, um, you know, to both me and to, you know, the, the, um, the professor, the, you know, they, they have to learn a little bit more about me in order to get the methodology across. You know, we, we look at tech. I mean, you know, I love tech. You have to show me mm. how the tech works. Otherwise, I just don't get it. You know, show me how it works. and I understand it. Now I'm going to run with it. and I'll be your best advocate of it. You know, but show me how it works and show me how to get the best data from it. You know, and then even I may discover some different data, but, you know, I'm all for, you know, breaking things down and reverse engineering it if I can. But that's the practical application. That's the applied research that I do in me rather than the academic researcher, researcher in me. You know, I just, I, I'm looking at an academic paper right now. I'm looking at a report. Um, tell me the title of it an investigation into impact ratio for potter club design and impact location um wow. you know yeah it was phenomenal and you know produced the world scientific congress of golf uh, from 2018 um in canada um dr paul hoian you know it's phenomenal read um i do get it don't get me wrong, I do get it because I know what the data is saying. But, you know, to try and create something like that myself would be a challenge. You know, I'm much more about the practical side of things. So, you know, I've got all this information, but, you know, it's not written. And, you know, I've done all of, you know, I've done all my research, but it's all done applied and it's not written because, you know, I've got some notes on it. <laughs> you know, it's not been done in an academic format, so it can't be written as an academic paper. So, you know, and that... That is a challenge, you know, for, for me and also getting this, this knowledge into the industry. Um, and if anybody's out there and would like to do some 
research work with me, I'd be more than happy to have a conversation with them because, you know, I think it's, um, it'd be great to get that information across. As you know, I'm passionate about getting the right information out there and, and seeing everybody have the best opportunity to improve and, and to enjoy this game because it's becoming very frustrating on the greens and around the greens based on current teaching trends and principles, you know. Short game is being plagued by into-out swing path from long game coaching. And, you know, the club face needs to be open to the path of the club in order to optimise the strike angles and, you know, flight and spin and, you know, axis of rotation and all the things that go on with, um, you know, delivering consistent short game strokes and shots. And yet, you know, long game teaching is opposing that. And that's why a long game coach isn't getting the results in short game coaching, because they're not aware of, of the, you know, the distinct changes that are, are needed to be had around the greens. You know, there's obviously a clue in there to, to how to fix things. But that's why once we identify what the challenges are, we can overcome them quite quickly. And of course, yeah. quite quickly is relative because if you're just starting to see a problem and you come and see me, it is real quick. You know, identify the ball flight laws in terms of wedge shots and, you know, make the adjustment to the flight of the club and the path of you know, the angle of attack at, you know, path of club and face angle and, you know, shaffling and all of those characteristics that create the spin axis on the ball and you get full control. And, and I mean, full control over everything you want and you do it. And you can be as creative as Seve or as mechanical as you want to be. But ultimately, you get it because you understand what the club is supposed to be doing to the golf ball to make the shot happen. Um, if you've been doing it for 10 years, then you've got a lot of bad habits to break. So it's going to take a little longer. So, you know, it may not be, you know, an immediate resulting effect um, and change, but one that takes just a little while longer. Can we jump back to the, the putter length as well, Andy? Because what I noticed going back to the kind of, especially um, the open of, of all yeah. ages, was that Faldo, Savvy, Nicholas, all the putters looked like children's clubs. Mm. They looked so small in big men's hands, if that makes sense. Why? What was the, what was the fashion in those days for that kind of putter length? And, and still, I know it's a passion of yours and one of the myths that you like to debunk is that perfect length of putter and it's not always a 34 inch putter or a 32 yeah. inch putter yeah. i mean i had conversations this morning i've got um what we got here fella five foot eight 33 inches uh five eleven 34 inches five foot ten 34 inches six foot three 34 inches um you know no guessing where they bought them from um you know mm -hmm. and um Yes, when it comes down to it, why why were these players doing what they were doing? Um, you know, you've named three players who actually we know Faldo's a very you know big man. I mean, you know, he's he, he's got an incredible um, aura about him. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to embarrass him if he if he was listening. That'd be nice if you could get him to listen to this. Um, but but ultimately, you know, incredible aura. I mean, I was on the Mizuno truck a couple of times when he walked on, and it was like you know a presence had arrived. Not just, I mean, the whole truck used to shake when he walked on because you know he has a very authoritative step as he went up the steps into the truck. It was incredible. But 
Um, and he's, you know, I'm not the biggest fellow in the world, you know, so he's quite an imposing character and he blocks the sunlight in the doorway of a tour truck. It's, <laughs> it is a sight to mm. behold, you know, but you know who it is. And, you know, I'm very fortunate. I've met him a few times and, you know, lunched with him and, um, it, you know, it was, it, you know, it, it, golf, all golf clubs looked tiny in his hands. He's a very imposing figure. Nicholas, you know, was not as big as I thought he was going to be. You know, I thought he was a big, big man and, you know, not that much bigger. I mean, you know, technically three inches bigger than me. He's not like that big, but, you know, I've my kids is six foot tall. So, uh, yeah, that is big. Mm -hmm. um, but, but ultimately, you know, and Seve was six foot one, of course. And, you know, so, but he was bent over his putter. What intrigued me with Seve is that he had a bad back and it was his lower back. And yet he spent mm -hmm. a lot of time doing chipping and, you know, putting. And there were part of the reason for that is because he had to play so many recovery shots. But had he had a slightly longer club, maybe that wouldn't have put so much pressure on his lower back. But there was damage there in the lower back. So, you know, that um, was always likely to be a problem. But ultimately, um, you know, the players were bending over the putter sort of through the 70s. It was, you know, back in 1965, Putters were averaging 37, well, they were 37 inches long, um, 285 grams of head weight. And then we went and invented the, well, not me, you know, the, the putter, Carson Solheim, of course, invented the Pinganza and, you know, increased the head weight to 315 grams to, in order to try and get more um, uh, forgiveness into the head. And subsequently, it felt really, really heavy. So, you know, in order to reduce the swing weight, then he had to cut the putter down. So 40 grams in the yeah. head meant that he could cut the putter down to sort of 35, 36 inches. And, you know, as most people didn't really use the full length of the club, although they did, but they bent their arms, it felt like they could actually extend their arms a little bit more. And, of course, then extending to shorter, to heavier, to shorter still, to bending over more, to get new eyes over the ball for the imaginary line. Um visibility and all of those factors there then changed posture and as we got more and more bent over it we then limited the body's movement and that seems like a really good thing the, the less the body can move the more control you have over the club and the ball but actually that's not the case because the laws of physics remember that was the exam i didn't turn up for the laws mm -hmm. of physics state that you know you need momentum in order to sustain movement you can't do it from a stationary object. You can't move a golf ball without hitting it, which means you have to move something to create momentum to move the ball. You know, and you know, in layman's terms, you know, the, you can't move a fixed object without exacting a force upon it, greater than the one that's holding it still, which of course is gravitational and friction. So you have to hit it. You have to move something. So you're going to move the club. You're going to move the club. There's two ends to the club you know it's not attached in the hand with the club so um you know the club head is not in the hands um it's it's at the end of the shaft and obviously the, the golfer is holding the grip and the grip is the only contact point and so subsequently the contact point is the control point and the control you know 36 inches away is you know significant one degree 10 foot 2.09 inches away from your start line of course, the hole is 2.125 inches away from the centre, the edge of the hole. So 10-foot putt, one-degree error, balls are very much likely to miss. So 
you know, in all of those, there's me, you know, to miss the technical, <laughs> all the numbers, listening to myself there thinking, oh, crikey, there's a whole bunch of data. You know, you can't get away from feel, you know, and, and technique. You've got to have technical capability to, you know, allow feel to come out. I don't think about swinging a, swinging a butter, but yet I am aware about, uh, about what I do, you know, and, you know, I don't want a player to think about, you know, 20 different things. I mean, crikey, even Bobby Jones couldn't cope with two swing thoughts. It was a great story back from the day. I think I remember listening to this on, I'm trying to think who it was that said it now, be one of the old players, you know, um, and back in the day, I mean, you know, talking about 1960s winners of, you know, major championships who knew Bobby Jones. But, you know, when he retired, Bobby Jones was asked by, you know, a great journalist, golfing journalist at the time, and was writing in the New York Times. And, you know, what do you put your success down to? And he said, oh, you know, if I had two swing thoughts, you know, I couldn't play. If I had one swing thought, I could play, but I probably couldn't compete. And if I had no swing thoughts, well, nobody could beat me. And when that got written in the paper, everybody said, nah, there's no way Bobby would say that. He's far too humble to say that. And yet, you know, that's exactly what he said. So a couple of weeks later, Bobby turns up at the tournament. He's not playing, but he's called in to have a few drinks with the boys and catch up with his old friends. And, you know, they say, hey, Bobby, what's this going on here? You know? Did you make this statement? He said, yeah. He said, no, you're far too humble to this. You were misquoted, weren't you? He says, no. If I, couldn't, if I could have no swing thoughts, that's exactly what it was. You, could, you guys could never beat me. So how come we never knew this? He said, because I wasn't going to give you a chance to give me a couple of swing thoughts, was I? You know, so, <laughs> you know, players even, you know, at that level, um, you know, don't need swing thoughts. And, and these are the things that we have to be mindful of. I don't want any swing thoughts when I'm swinging the golf club, putter, wedge. But I have to if I'm going through practice or if I'm not practicing much, you know, then, you know, I've just come out of a, a rib injury, which, you know, I didn't know I had, but I've got stiffness in my back, which wasn't going away. And, you know, I've been to see my chiropractor now after lockdown and said to him, look, have a look at my lower back and see what you can think. But, you know, I've got this stiffness in the, in the sort of lumbar area, but it's more up the sides. The obliques are really tight. And he said, yeah, they are. He did a little bit of probing around and realized I'd actually displaced a rib. I don't even know when I did it. How I've got it back, I've wow. got freedom back. I'm able to swing and freely move. I'm, you know, it's every man's dream. Go to a chiropractor and go and get yourself released and you'll find five mile an hour more club head speed. But, you know, we were hitting balls on mm -hmm. the range last week and you saw me swinging 112. Well, I'm back up to mid-teens mid again now. So, you know, 115, 117 literally by getting released by the chiropractor. But more importantly was the fact that the shots that I felt that I should be getting closer or better strikes on the wedge shots, they're back because I'm able to get through the golf ball better. So again, it's recognizing that you've got to move your body. You've got to be able to move your body to get out of the way to play the shots. It's okay hitting, you know, 75 and 100 yard shots, but the 50 yard shot was just bugging me. I was practicing it hard and just not quite getting the strike. It was, you know, it was close enough, more than acceptable, but you know, not at the level that I want to perform at. So I'm there practicing, I'm thinking, I'm work, trying to work it out until I can get into that position, you know, to actually not think about it. You know, my performance didn't feel, it was probably 80%, you know, which for me is, is a long way off the mark. But, you know, I then went out and hit a bucket of balls the other day and I felt like I got all but wedge shots back.
you know, from 25 to 50 yards. I mean, it just felt like they were all back. It's like amazing. But, you know, it's because I, I wasn't having to think about it anymore. And when you're not thinking mm. about it, it becomes a whole lot easier to, you know, to, to crack on and do the job. I mean, it's just amazing. So, you know, when we're swinging a golf club, we just want to be able to do it freely. And like I say, not think about it. So it's, yeah, you've got to be able to get, in, you know, into good posture. When you're getting a club that's too short, you lose your posture. When you lose your posture, you know, and again, like I say, the advent of all the clubs getting shorter. Now we're accepting the club that can be longer and heavier and not have to be a D2 swing weight. Um, Do you think that's a, that's a trend of moving towards the, the kind of the light bulbs coming on, especially with somebody like John Rahm with his length of his putter? Oh, crikey, yeah. I mean, it's such a breath of fresh air. The world number one is now using a 37-inch putter. Actually, part of the reason why he's world number one is because he uses a 37-inch putter, guys. Um, you know, six foot three, I think he is. He's a big fella, you know, but he's using a club that fits. He's got f- tremendously long arms and he's using a 37-inch putter because he is tall, you know, and I sa- keep mm-hmm. saying this, and I'll probably say this every single week there's a podcast on, and those of you that are tuning in and subscribing and, you know, listening and, in, incessantly every single week, thank you, but you will get bored of me saying that a putter's got to fit. And, you know, if it fits, then you're going to start to swing it more freely. And it goes beyond posture. It, you know, what posture does more than anything else is it frees up the brain to allow instinctive, creative behavior. When the brain starts to get confused by, you know, what it's trying to do to get the job done because it's out of balance in poor posture. And you won't recognize, initially, you won't recognize how poor your posture is. You know, you start off with a putter, let's say, you know, Andy Gorman goes back to a 34-inch putter. And, you know, I won't notice that I'm out of balance, you know, initially, you know, or possibly even ever because the club is only an inch and three-eighths shorter than what I'm normally using. But, you know, if I succumb to that putter and then start to bend a little bit further and bend a little bit further, I mean, heaven forbid my back would be screaming at me. I know it would when I could feel the pain mm-hmm. now but you know if I was ever doing that blindly going into having a shorter putter and I then got down to 33 I'd be bending further forward you know and tucking my arms in even closer and my back would be screaming even more and now we're into that vicious cycle of of all things that can go wrong but my brain would be scrambled as to how I was going to move the putter the instinctiveness has yeah. gone because now its primary function the brain's primary function at that point is don't fall over because that's injury. And brain f- functionality is very simple. It's going to preserve life first. Now, you're going to say, oh, crikey, it sounds a bit dramatic. It's not life-threatening. No, it's not. But that doesn't stop the brain from going into a, an amber alert. You know, do not fall over. Yeah. And, of course, then it then locks down every capable movement on the back of that. You know, and I'm sure there'll be people there that would question this you know, and our audience might not extend to the neurospecialists at this point in time, but I hope it does because, you know, I'd love to talk to somebody and, you know, get their take on it. You know, it's because, you know, the thing that fascinates me the most is when you get into Bobby Jones's principle again, no thoughts, you're able to freewheel mm-hmm. the swing. And if you're not thinking, you know, it becomes a whole lot easier to play. You know, and that's yeah. the thing, you know, I don't want players 
having to think about how to move the putter. I just want them to feel the putter, you know, which means mm -hmm. that, you know, anything that I'm teaching isn't about young pro on, on the phone the other day. So I can't cope with this, you know, very much into the mechanics. I said, I can't, I can't process this, you know, sort of instinctiveness, you know, I've got to get the mechanics right. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Like Lewis Hamilton, you know, his mechanics get the car right so that he doesn't have to think about it. It doesn't stop him. You listen to the radio during the race. He's talking about all the technical stuff because he's just cracking on and doing the driving anyway. You know, and what are the teams saying back to him? Lewis, you stick to the driving. We'll worry about the others. We'll worry about the technical yeah. stuff. You crack on and drive because they know what he's good at. They, all of them probably much, you know, sort of in awe of his ability to be able to drive a car at those speeds. But more importantly, he can't do it without them as well. And you see that when he wins his races. And the first thing he does is, thanks, guys, couldn't have done it without you. His appreciation for the work that they do and the work that, you know, his coaches, in effect, they're working on mechanical stuff. He's, he, he is solely a car and him. That's it. You know, and, but, there's, you know, we all know that there's not 350 people employed by Mercedes motorsport in, in order to get Lewis Hamilton around the track for no reason. Um, you know, it is a massive team that gets that done. I mean, typically, you know, in golf, we're either on our own, you know, we might have a swing coach, we might have a sports psychologist with us, we might have a physio with us, but, you know, ultimately in a caddy if we're playing in tournaments, but, you know, we're pretty much a very small team, you know, trying to get, you know, the wheels to turn efficiently. And, you know, but, but we're always up against the fact that, now, the industry's belligerent approach to putter fitting, you know, it's got to be 34 inches and it can fit anybody that can. It's a universal lie angle, a universal loft and a universal length. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And coming from probably the biggest supplier of putters, you know, both on tour and retail, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's just abhorrent. Um, you know, and I do struggle with that. It's you know, mm -hmm. but you know, when we can get ourselves out, if number one, if PGA need to take up the challenge of teaching pros at both at training level and at qualification level, and then beyond that in, you know, continued learning, you know, to understand more about the putting stroke and how to fit putters and then let the golf pros tell the industry what they want. Golf pros then yeah. start, start turning around and telling you know, Scotty Cameron and Odyssey and Ping and TaylorMade and these main manufacturers, you know, what they are wanting to sell to their customers rather than, you know, having these putters made to measure from the Far East, you know, and I've got nothing wrong with the products that are coming out of the Far East. That's not a slight on the Far East. That's the Far East are making clubs that the manufacturers are asking them to make and they're making very good, good golf equipment. What I'm saying is one size doesn't fit all. And putters, when they're measured yeah. at 33, 34, and 35, is like Footjoy and Nike making shoes size 6, 7, and 8. They might fit a couple of people, but they're not, they're not even going to hit the mainstream and, you know, get, get most people, you know. Only, and they'll be out of business in no time. So, you know, we're yeah. continually building putters that are too short, forcing people to bend over it, causing them to have aching backs so they can't practice. You know, you can see why I can say it's a conspiracy. You know, ultimately, because they want to sell more putters and hope that they've got the brand loyalty mm -hmm. towards it. There you go. I've said it. <laughs> It'll go live. We're not going to edit this. 
you know ultimately you know it is that's my theory behind it and if a manufacturer wants to come back and explain to me why it's only 33 34 and 35 i would love that conversation and i think that's you know conversations that need to be had i think the golf the golfers we owe it to golfers and the golf industry owes it to golfers yeah. that you look the, your target's never going to get any bigger four and a quarter inches we're stuck on it that's fine i've got no problem with the, with that as a target but give ourselves the best opportunity to hold the putt you know, we talk about the one putt program. The one putt program is your best ability to have one putt per green. And if you have mm-hmm. to, take a, take the tap in for the cleanup. But, you know, every golfer can be good enough to have a one putt approach. And, you know, that's, you know, I'm, I'm not just fervently believe it. I know it. You know, because yeah, exactly. you don't have to be an athlete to do it. But you do have to get into an athletic position. And everybody can because athleticism is down to skeletal structure, not, you know, how heavy you might be. Uh, you know, it's not talking about, you know, sort of BMI or, you know, whatever we want to call it. And I'm, you know, trying to be politically correct here. But ultimately, it's not about the size of your body. It's about the ability to stand the way your body is designed to move. And when we mm-hmm. do that, we free up the body to move. You free up the brain to allow it to happen. And then spatial awareness and freedom of movement and distance control and club face control, you know, all comes out of it. You know, it's the byproduct of standing in the position that you need to be in. And, you know, that's the, that's why I'm so passionate about, you know, these podcasts, the YouTube channels, you know, those we start to develop some more of the coaching programs, the, the, um, the website learning, but of course, you know, hey, we've got a new website now. We better mention that. Um, AndyGormanGolf.com is there. So, um, you know, we've got some great products in the, in the store and, you know, we've got training products and, you know, we're in the process of editing um, the putting and short game series as well. So, you know, we're, we're out there with the modern fundamentals of putting and subsequently the modern fundamentals of short game. And, you know, these are what's going to make you a better golfer you know and you know because you know i'm already at a comfortable place by you know not not playing competitively excessively um not trying to earn money playing golf i'm out there helping folk to improve their game which i'm passionate about exactly brilliant andy absolutely superb so i think we've covered pretty much what what we had on our agenda i don't think that we've got anything else to uh to sort of say this week i just wish all those all the golfers out there that are competing um both on the pga and the european tour um yeah great opportunity to get out there and get competing again that's great you know obviously stay safe in what you do um you know and it'd be great for us to know exactly who it was that that won you know when we do this but of course we'll do a double tour tour talk um on the winners and obviously the successes that we've had from from uh close house this week and where are we next week is it um i think we are at uh it's got, it might be even the forest of all yeah you know? i think uh, i think it might be but you know wherever the events are and obviously of course we're heading into world golf championship as well in the states next week aren't we so wind yeah, and then into the, the, the USPGA. Yeah, so we'll be communicating with you next week, Monday, um, which will be the first Monday in August. That's incredible, isn't it? August. 
Um, <laughs> so we'll be communicating with you again in August. So we'll have winners from the events. We'll have some tour talk for whatever it is that um, has pricked our interests. And obviously, um, you know, we will be looking to to bring something topical to you. But of course, we'll also be on the first major uh, of 2020. So that's our next podcast will be the first Monday in August. And um, yeah, it'll be major championship week, USPGA. So I'm looking forward to that. And, um, you know, getting watching some late night golf with a major championship on the line. So it'll be good to see, um, you know, if that can be done. Who's going to win? Mm-hmm. Who's, who, who, who do you think? Is it Bryson's week? Uh, it'll be good to see, won't it? So, uh, yeah, we'll be having those conversations, I'm sure. So um, leaves me to say, have a great week ahead, guys. Remember, this is a pre-recorded show for um, our Monday uh, podcast so um i'm not going to wish you a good weekend although you can have one following at the end of the week <laughs> um, have a great week mm-hmm. and um, i trust that you will stay well and uh, keep the ball rolling nice and smooth i'll catch up with you soon